Please open your Bibles and turn under Psalm 33. Psalm 33, and we'll begin reading verse number 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with harp, sing unto him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song, play skillfully with a loud noise. For the word of the Lord is right, and all of his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He make the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike, he considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety, neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death, and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in thee. When me and my brothers were younger, we would play a game with each other, where one brother would make a statement and the other brother would ask the single word question, why? The other person had to try and come up with an answer to that simple question that couldn't give the other player an opportunity to ask why again. For example, Caleb might say that we need to go to the store, and Jacob would ask, why? Caleb then might say, because we need to get supplies for Ethan's birthday party. Jacob would ask why again, and the answer would have to increasingly get more complicated. Most of the time, this game would end with the person answering the question just giving up, and then saying, because God made it that way. And the person asking why couldn't say anything to that. Now that I'm in college, especially as an English major, all I do basically is ask why. When we'll read a text in class, and the professor will essentially just ask us why, and then we students have to try and figure out the text's meaning, the author's intentions, and all kinds of other things like that. Why is a pretty important question, especially when it comes to the practices of the church. When we worship God, we should understand why we do what we're doing every Sunday. So let's play the why game with the services this morning. Why did we begin the services today with songs? You might think, well, um, Brother Harold and Elijah walked up to the pulpit, announced the songs that we were going to sing, Mom played the piano, and then we all sang. 
Why did we do that? Well, God commands us to praise him. It says it right there in our text this morning. And that's a good enough reason itself. If God tells us to do something, we ought to do it. If God gives us a command, we ought to obey it, because he said so. So we've officially reached the end point of the why game then, right? Well, in the case of our childhood game, we didn't know why God made or planned things the way he did in our lives. But when it comes to why God commands us to praise him, God himself has answered our question. Psalm 33 both commands us to praise the Lord and also answers why we should. Those who read Psalm 33 and understand what it means should apply it to their lives by obeying its commands and understanding why it is good for them to do so. My sermon on Psalm 33 is split into three main points. We will first see the Lord's requirement, then we will see the psalmist's response, reasons, and then finally we'll see the Christian's response. So let's begin with the first point of the message, the Lord's requirement. The psalm begins with a command unto the people of God to rejoice in him. Verses 1 through 3 of our text says, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with heart, sing unto him with the psaltery and the instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song, played skillfully with a loud noise. Let's break this section down a little bit more. This collection of verses is a command. Who commanded it? Well, the psalmist is speaking to us, the reader here, but we know from 2 Peter chapter 1 that the Bible was written by holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So we can say that this is a command by God. The psalmist has received the word of God, and the Spirit of God has blessed him to tell us the command of God. Well, who is this command for? The psalmist also make this pretty easy for us. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous. This command is unto the people of God. God has provided a command unto the people that he has made righteous through the blood of Christ. There will be more on this subject later in the sermon, but for now, we can apply this truth in the fact that the children of God are righteous in Christ, and as such, this command from God to rejoice in him applies to us. Now that we know who gave this command and who is supposed to obey it, we can explore the command itself in detail. There are actually several commands in the first three verses of our text. The first is, of course, to rejoice in the Lord. Paul reaffirms this command to us in the New Testament in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I say again, rejoice. The Webster's 1828 Dictionary explains that to rejoice is to experience joy and gladness in a high degree, to be exhilarated with lively and pleasurable sensations, to exalt. God has commanded us as his people to rejoice in him, to praise him, and this rejoicing is good for our souls. The first verse of our text affirms this, for praise is comely for the upright. It is comely, or proper, suitable, it is becoming of a child of God to praise him. It is a natural thing for the child of God to do in response to the character and works of the Lord. What we did this morning before the preaching of the word was a natural and good thing for us to do as people who love God. We also see from these first few verses that we are direct, 
that we are to direct our rejoicing to God in a few specific ways. Verse 2 says that we are to praise the Lord with heart, sing unto him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. And verse 3 states that we should sing unto him a new song, play skillfully with a loud noise. So God commands us to rejoice in him through music. What a beautiful command. The Lord our God commands us to praise him with the art form of music. We are to sing songs unto the Lord, we are to play instruments skillfully unto the Lord, and we are to do it loudly. This is one of those commands that reminds me of Jesus' words unto his people to follow him, where he said, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a great command unto the people of God that he wants us to worship him with one of the most beautiful forms of art in existence. Music is a transcendent art form. Dad was telling us about a book he had read that was about the several different arguments for the existence of God. And in that book, the author talked about music. You can find videos on the internet that have become pretty popular where parents will expose their babies to beautiful music. And the babies will stop what they're doing and listen to the music and sometimes even cry over it. Even little babies know the power and the beauty of good music. Music has an incredible power to bless all people and comfort them in times of sorrow and also to lift people up in great rejoicing. I know that for myself personally that I can get sad and depressed about myself and my failures before the Lord, and I can listen to a hymn that preaches the truth of the gospel to me, and it can restore my soul. Good music is incredibly good for us, and our God commands us to use music to praise him and rejoice in him. The fact that God commands us to worship him in a way that is beneficial to us as well already gives us a hint into God's character. But what are the specific reasons we should sing and play unto the Lord? What kind of God is the Lord? Why do we owe him our rejoicing? Our next point, the psalmist reasons, deals with these questions. The psalmist gives us multiple reasons to rejoice and sing songs unto the Lord from verses 4 through 19. These reasons can be grouped together into four main reasons, the first reason being the word of the Lord is right. Verses 4 through 5 of our text state, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. The word of the Lord is right, and God loves righteousness and judgment. The false gods that human beings invent and worship do not love righteousness and judgment. I'm reading the Iliad in one of my classes in college, and it's amazing how wicked the gods act. All throughout that book, the gods are motivated not from a pure desire for righteousness or justice, but for selfish and vain reasons. The whole conflict in the book actually begins with a few of the false goddesses fighting over a beauty contest. And even Zeus, supposedly the mightiest and holiest of the false gods, does most of the actions in the book because he's afraid he'll make his wife mad and will act counter to justice to not get people mad at him. How glorious, then, is the one true God who loves righteousness and judgment. If you want, you can turn with me, but I'll just be going through a few verses quickly, first being in Psalm eleven seven. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, 
his countenance doth behold the upright. Another verse on the Lord's righteousness can be found a few psalms over in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse number 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Lord is a righteous and holy God. There are probably thousands of verses in the Bible that pertain to God's judgments, but a few that I will mention specifically are in Leviticus 19.36, which states, Just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen shall ye have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. In this passage, Lord is capitalized here, meaning that God connects, connects the justice found in just measurements to his very name, Jehovah. God makes plain that justice and judgment come from him are, and are beloved by him. Another verse that makes that plain is Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11 and verse 1, which says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Solomon tells us here that the Lord takes delight in just weights and shows the other side of this truth that God hates false weights. This proverb directly compares the two ideas that God both loves justice and hates injustice. One more verse on the subject can be found in Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 5, where it says, The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. There are many people, myself included, that sometimes doubt God when we shouldn't. We look out at the world and we see all kinds of terrible things happening, and we don't understand why any of it is happening. And we can, sinfully I might add, question whether God is governing righteously. Maybe we don't say that out loud. But that's the implicit suggestion behind questions like, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? We question whether or not our God really does all things righteously. This verse in Zephaniah clearly dispels such questioning by making it plain to us that God will never do iniquity. No matter what is happening in the world right now, no matter what you are going through, God will never do sin. God only does righteousness and only judges righteously. We can trust in our God that everything that happens to us in our lives and in the world while we live here can only happen at the will of a righteous God who does no sin. The Lord loves righteousness and judges righteously. The second reason we should rejoice in the Lord is because the works of the Lord are awesome. Back in our text in Psalm 33, Starting in verse number six, it says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Our God is an awe-inspiring God and his works are unmatchable in the earth. The great work that, that most of this section is referring to is the creation of the world. But let's turn over to Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse number 6. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. Think about, for a moment here, the power that God demonstrates. God needed only to speak the word, and oceans and the sky were created in a moment. God commanded the sky and the planet's oceans to exist, and by his will alone, the earth was formed. Those among us who are parents know that you, it's very difficult to keep your children in line by speaking only words of commands unto them. Parents rightly have God-given authority to govern their children, but what you tell them to do has almost no power over them unless they choose to listen to you rather than disobey you. Obviously, there are things that you should do to get your children to listen to you and respect your authority, but that's another subject. The point I'm making is that you who are parents can't make your own children obey you by your word alone. You have to discipline your children into obeying you. God's word is so powerful that he commanded the entire world to exist just by saying it, and it did. Think about how vast the oceans are, how vast the skies are, and then think that these creations were made out of nothing by the word of the Lord alone. The passage of the psalm calls us to have a natural reaction to such power. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This command is no longer just limited to just Christians. The command said that all people across the planet should fear the Lord because of his mighty power. This command is especially relevant to us in these days. There's a lot of discourse in our country right now about why everything seems to be falling apart. And I hear a lot of different reasons from a lot of different people as to why our country is in a mess. Politicians or political personalities will spend hours talking about all the reasons why everything is terrible right now how that's their enemy's fault, and how they would make everything perfect and only they were elected. It seems to me that the real problem our country has right now is that we live in a society that has no fear of the Lord. One political side of the aisle will revel in every degenerate perversity known to man and open defiance of the Lord, and the other side will use God's name as a slogan or a yard sign to get votes, rather than truly honor and fear the Lord. Our country mocks God and thinks nothing of his infinite power. That is a foolish thing to do. Let us who are followers of Christ fear the Lord and pray that our country will do so as well. We Christians ought to obey God's command to rejoice for the works of the Lord are awesome. The third reason to rejoice in the Lord we find in our text is because the sovereignty of the Lord is unchallenged starting in verse 10 of our text. It says, The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. 
The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. These verses are quite similar to the refrain of Psalm 2. Uh, turn your Bible over a few pages to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse number 2. And it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Both Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 make it quite ev or Psalm 2 and Psalm 33 rather make it quite evident that God is sovereign and his will is unchallenged by the plots of the wicked. What I find interesting about both of these psalms is that they compare and contrast the counsel of the heathen to the counsel of the Lord. Psalm 2 describes the counsel of the wicked in trying to overthrow God's anointed one and then demonstrate how feeble it is in comparison to the will of the Lord. In Psalm 33, the specific details of the counsel of both the wicked and the Lord are not made um, very specific, but the main point is the same. The plans of the wicked are useless in comparison to the divine decree of the Lord. It's almost as if the psalmist is making a direct callback to Psalm 2 in Psalm 33, reminding us that the Lord God is sovereign, and his sovereign will shall be accomplished. And no scheme of the wicked will overthrow or overpower God's plan. <coughs> God's sovereignty is further described in our passage in Psalm 33, starting in verse 12. <coughs> Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike, he considereth all their works. This is one of the clearest passages in the scriptures about God's sovereignty in the Bible. It begins with a simple declaration that God is sovereign in election. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. What a controversial declaration, and yet how undeniably true the sentence is. It's hard to argue that this passage means anything other than what it plainly says. God chooses whom he will be his people. If you think about all the reasons to rejoice in God that we have covered so far, it only makes sense that God would be all-powerful in election. Yet some people teach and believe that God can only save those who choose him first. In the context of the previous verses, this statement is absurd. If God is so powerful that the universe 
came into existence by his mere command, how could the will of man be more powerful? That is the suggestion of that doctrine, that God isn't powerful enough to save those who reject him in their sins, and that mankind has the power to choose for himself the state of his soul, regardless of what God wants. This teaching only becomes more absurd the more you think about it. Can you, sitting in your pew right now, create a universe on command? Can you speak light and darkness into existence? Could you form the earth and the ocean with your will alone from nothing? Of course not. So how could it be that your will, which is infinitely less powerful than God, trump the will of God in salvation? How could you make a choice to not receive Christ and God, who really wanted to save you, would be forced to watch helplessly as you dove into the depths of hell? The answer is you couldn't. That could never happen. The reality of our spiritual state is that you could never be saved by your own power. Neither would you ever want to. Everyone in this room, if they were completely honest with themselves, would testify that they would never have wanted to be saved unless God the Spirit had borne them again. You would have looked at your life, decided you weren't as bad as most people, and lived freely without a care to what God had said until you died, at which point you would have been justly cast into the burning pit. Praise the Lord God that our salvations are not in our hands, but in the hands of our sovereign God, who both has the will and the power to save us. The Lord is also sovereign over the unsaved as well. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike, he considereth all their works. God knows everything that the wicked do. And God knows the hearts of all the sons of men. The wickedness and deceit that evildoers try to hide and commit in secret shall be found out. The darkness cannot hide the works of man, for God created light and dark. The hearts of men cannot hide their intentions, for God fashioneth their hearts alike. Ultimately, the heathens of this world will be judged righteously by the sovereign Lord who created them, and they will be held accountable for their sins. God's sovereignty is another reason to rejoice in the Lord. The fourth reason the psalm gives us to rejoice in the Lord is because the strength of the Lord is sure. Beginning in verse 16 of our text, it says, There is no king saved by a multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death, and to keep them alive in famine. The Christian ought to rejoice in the Lord, for the Lord is strong to deliver him. This portion of the psalm does another comparison between the world and God. And this time, it is over their strength to deliver you from death and tribulation. The psalmist goes through some of the most powerful things in the world at his time. The strength of an army, the strength of a mighty man, and the strength of a horse. 
The psalmist then simply declares all of these things to be worthless and unable to save you. And the same is still true to this day. To be sure, there is much strength in a vast army and a mighty man and a horse. These things are powerful in and of themselves. But what is the danger they can't save us from? Death. It doesn't matter how powerful you may be as a man, no matter how much you exercise and you train and prepare, your strength will fail you, and eventually you will die. It doesn't matter how vast you may be as an army, what kind of weapons that you use or the training that you receive. An army cannot defeat death, and no matter how strong the army is, every person in it will sooner or later die. The horse is a mighty animal, full of strength and speed. In the days of the psalmist, having horses in your military, in your army, could mean the difference between victory or defeat on the battlefield. And yet, even horses will die, and their strength cannot save them. The strength of all of these things can't save you from famine, either. During the late 1960s, the Nigerian government won a civil war against the secessionist state of Bifra by cutting off any food into the region. The secessionists had a strong army, but eventually surrendered after going so long without any food that they were starving to death. I think the source that I read online said that around 2 million people starved to death during that campaign. Famine and death will destroy the strength of anything in this world. And there is nothing and no one you can trust to save you. No one, that is, except the Lord. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. The Lord is mighty and strong, and he has the power to save you from famine and death. How can God save me from death? The psalm has already given us the answer. The previous three reasons for rejoicing in the Lord are all the one reason the Lord can save you from the grip of death. You are an undeserving sinner, and you cannot save yourselves from the depth of the depravity that you have committed against God. You cannot earn God's favor, and you cannot become righteous in and of yourself. You have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. But praise God that through the blood, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God can grant you eternal life. God has promised eternal life to all those who repent of their sins and turn unto his precious Son for forgiveness. Psalm 33 gives you every reason to trust and hope in that promise. Jesus Christ, the one who loves righteousness and justice, died on the cross so that his people could be forgiven of their sins and obtain his own righteousness. Jesus, the Son of God, is so powerful that he defeated death itself by rising from the dead and granting his people eternal life in the most amazing and awesome work in the universe. And the sovereign power of the Lord Jesus means that no one who comes to him by faith and trusts in him to save them will ever be lost. No power in the universe could ever take a child of God away from their Lord. 
Romans 8.38 explains it plainly. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of all these things, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 33 to simply trust in the strength of the Lord, and he will deliver you from famine and death. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. Finally, we arrive to the Christian's response. The psalmist, having supplied us with all the reasons to rejoice in the Lord, poses to us now, I suppose, a question. What do God's children do in response to this? The Lord God has called upon us to rejoice in him, and the psalmist has given us all the reasons why we should do so. How should we respond to all that? The righteous people of God answer themselves in the last three verses of our text. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in thee. The people of God hear the command of the Lord, and they answer with one accord. We will rejoice, O Lord. The people do three specific things in these concluding verses. Firstly, they put their trust in the Lord. Having heard of the wicked counsel of the world and the world's vain strength in the face of death, the people of God heed the word of the psalmist and put their trust in the Lord. Secondly, after hearing the command of the Lord to rejoice in him and to put their trust in him, the people declare that they will rejoice in the Lord. They who have been shown the justice and power and sovereignty of the Lord in this psalm obey their Lord and declare that they will praise and rejoice in his name. Thirdly, the people call upon the name of the Lord. They pray a simple prayer. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in thee. They have heard the declaration of the psalmist that the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. And the people answer by trusting in God's word and praying for mercy based on their trust in him. So I'll say it again. What should we do? Us here today in Clay County, West Virginia, what will we do having heard the word of the Lord, the command of the Lord to trust and rejoice in him? It is my prayer that we would follow in the example of the righteous in this Psalm 33 and obey the command of the Lord by putting our trust in him and rejoicing in him forever. Rejoice in the Lord always.